Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and this is episode number 359. As part of our Smithsonian Associates Art of Living author interview series, we are joined today by historian, award-winning author, Dr. G. Wayne Clough. As a big supporter of the Smithsonian, I, of course, know this name and have gotten to know this man, G. Wayne Clough. You'll meet him in just a moment, and if you don't know yet, you'll know soon what a wonderful, articulate, and kind man we'll be speaking with. One introduction of Dr. G. Wayne Clough from the New York Times describes Dr. Clough as someone in government who sets a good example. I also found in my research the use of the phrase widely respected a lot. Dr. Clough has done that and much more, as we'll learn. I get to speak with many people in my work, some wonderful people, but Dr. G. Wayne Clough ranks very high on my list of people I'd like to talk with for a lot more time than I'm able to spend time with and learn from. Dr. G. Wayne Clough will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates Program Thursday, June 20th, 2019. Dr. Clough will be joined by Freddie Edelman, Director of Smithsonian Associates, who will serve as moderator. As I say, we'll hear from Dr. Clough in just a moment, but I caught up with Freddie Edelman and asked her about Dr. Clough's contribution to the Smithsonian and what makes Dr. Clough so special. The first thing that I want to say about Wayne is that his unending inquisitiveness and his openness to new experience is one of the most refreshing things I think any of us saw in a secretary. So my first encounter with him was I was working for the Traveling Exhibition Service and we were unpacking crates of materials related to a Jim Henson exhibition. And we planned this whole event and invited him to come and be part of the uncrating and we gave him gloves. And we expected that he would be dazzled by these cool artifacts, which were Muppets. And instead, he laser focused on the crates. And he wanted to know about crate making and packing and the logistics of trucks and insurance. And he got so deep into it that the people who were trying to move him to his next meeting just kind of threw their hands up in the air and said, okay, well, we're just going to have to call ahead and tell them we're going to be late. So it was that level of interest and curiosity that made him an absolutely extraordinary secretary and a really fun person to get to know and to work with. The second memory I have of him is when he came to visit the Traveling Exhibition Service and looked at a map of rural communities around the United States that host Museum on Main Street exhibitions. And Museum on Main Street are very, very small exhibitions that tell very, very large national stories. And we have a map that pinpoints all these rural communities. And the first thing Wayne did was zero right in on Douglas, Georgia and say, look at that museum on Main Street in my hometown. And it was just such a powerful moment. He laughed and he really, again, just sort of spent time talking to people about the importance of having Smithsonian content 
in South Georgia. I got to serve on the steering committee for the strategic plan, and that was something, it was the first time the Smithsonian was going to develop a strategic plan. And Wayne's charge to us was twofold. He first said, I want the Smithsonian to articulate what the grand challenges for the future are going to be. And he said, look, I come from a large state university, and I know that state funding, federal funding, that is really generous, and we are grateful for it. But that is not a bottomless pot. That is that is going to flatten out at some point and our expenses are going to continue to rise and we have to as an organization be prepared for a new kind of future. And listening to his sort of grand vision with give us let let us develop grand challenges and these resulted in in language like the Smithsonian is going to be working on unlocking the mysteries of the universe. How's that for a grand challenge? And he was a leader in the digital revolution and technology. He did a conference called uh, Smithsonian 2.0 and it was the first time that thought leaders in the digital world could come together and talk about a digital plan for the Smithsonian. We didn't have what didn't exist when he first arrived. And he brought together big, big, big thinkers. And then he absorbed all of that information, shared it with the entire community, and encouraged the development of a plan for digitizing collections, which is a central issue in the entire museum world today. But he presaged that 10, almost 12 years ago, was he was always interested in education and young people. So he visited summer camp, he encouraged Smithsonian Associates programs, and he encouraged the pursuit of education in young children, in older kids, in college students and fellows, in his colleagues, in educators, in older people. He modeled that learning was boundless and told stories about learning in his own life at every stage. And you see that in the book where he talks about how he learned as a young boy and what he learned in school and what he learned in college and as a PhD student and what he learned at the university and what he learned here. So his value for learning um, comes through in his practice and in his his daily life and his beliefs. And then a, an anecdote I, I have about him, I was not in the room, but during the August 2011 Washington, D.C. earthquake, apparently there was a meeting taking place in the castle, and the earthquake happened, and everybody dove to the floor, and Wayne stayed where he was, and when the trembling ended, everybody sat back up and said, you know, we're, what was that? We're, you know, we're, we really thought the world was going to end. And Wayne said, no, no, I'm a civil engineer and this building is, you know, it's pretty solidly built. So I knew we weren't in any danger. He said, there, we may see that there's some pieces that have come loose, which indeed had. And he said, but given the length of time and the vigor of these the tremblers, I'm pretty sure I can estimate the distance between the center of the quake. And he was apparently absolutely correct. 
That was Freddie Edelman, director of Smithsonian Associates and moderator for the upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation by Dr. G. Wayne Clough, June 20th, 2019. Dr. Clough's aptly titled presentation, Things New and Strange, Secretary Clough finds personal links in the Smithsonian's collections and will draw from his new book, Things New and Strange, A Southerner's Journey Through the Smithsonian Collections. Before his retirement in 2014, G. Wayne Clough, the first Southern-born secretary of the Smithsonian, had become curious to learn what the institution's collections could tell him about South Georgia, where five generations of his family had lived and he spent his childhood. The investigation that followed, which began as something of a quixotic scavenger hunt, became a journey filled with unexpected outcomes. And now we'll hear from Dr. Clough, who will read from his new book about some of those unexpected outcomes, his discovery, riverboats, and Dr. Clough's family history in the Georgia South. So this passage uh, comes out of the the chapter on uh, reptiles, oddly enough, but uh, it relates to a visit to a farm that my grandfather Clough owned. And it starts with, uh, next, Frankie guided us down a dirt road that he said would take us to Rocky Hammock Landing named for the outcrops that protrude from beneath the banks of the Okmoga River, providing shallows where riverboats used to land. As we consulted the plat maps, it became clear that Rocky Hammock Landing was actually located on the northwest boundary of the Old Clough Farm. I realized that the two places I had heard about for years were in fact two places, pieces of a whole. When that riverboat carrying Grandfather Johnson and his family arrived at Rocky Hammock Landing in 1904, my mother had stepped off the boat onto the farm where my father lived. I had not only found two sites I was looking for, I had found a singular place where my existence was preordained. I watched the muddy Okmoge River sluggishly pass by Rocky Hammock Landing, and I thought about all I had learned that day. Well, I had my parents never brought me to see this place, even though it was only 20 miles from Douglas. We passed fairly close to it many times, visiting relatives on their farm. Why not go just a few miles further to see where Grandfather Clough's farm had been and where Mom had arrived with her family at Rocky Hammock Landing? I don't know the answer. I can only imagine that it was painful for dad to remember what life was like on his family's farm before it was lost and he and his siblings were forced to leave the only home they had ever known. It was like a chapter in his life that was closed and he had no need or wish to reopen it. Of course, that was our guest today, Dr. G. Wayne Clough, reading from his new book, Things New and Strange, A Southerner's Journey Through the Smithsonian Collections. Join me for what is one of my favorite conversations, my interview with Dr. G. Wayne Clough. Dr. G. Wayne Clough, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It it is a pleasure to talk to you. I get to talk to a lot of Smithsonian people, Dr. Clough, but I've been waiting for this interview with you. I just think this is going to be wonderful. And I wonder if you'd tell us briefly about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. Well, um, I've been fortunate to have been invited to participate in a book signing event for a new book that I have uh, completed entitled uh, Things New and Strange, A Southerner's Journey Through the Smithsonian Collections. And it's a book that connects my small rural home in Douglas, Georgia, in Coffee County, in the very southern part of the state, to the Smithsonian Collections and what I found in those collections. Uh, It really is a book that uh, shows the power 
of the Smithsonian collections, 154 million specimens, works of art, and artifacts strong. Uh, it shows how those collections blend time and space in ways that nothing else could. And because it relates to objects in the collection, there is a very visceral feel to what I was able to find. And the other part of this uh, book that, that relates to me, is it blends my family as well, because the, the gist of the collection's uh, story is, it dates from 15,000 years ago, because the first object was a fossil that was about that age of an, a mammal, an rematherium, uh, that uh, existed in South Georgia, a giant sloth, uh, was is now extinct, obviously. Uh, but that really is where the story starts. And it really then marches through a series of waves of time where nature and human beings changed uh, how this part of the country looked. And eventually in 1837, my great-great-grandfather, Forrest Truclough, uh, John Truclough, sorry, uh, came from New Hampshire and moved to Waycross, Georgia. And so we become part of the story. Uh, so it's a story about the Smithsonian collections, it's a story about a place, and it's a story about a family. But particularly, it allowed, when I went into this, I didn't have a really good sense of what the narrative would be, but it, it really is about how a place became what it is as a result of all these different factors that play into it. Uh, and, and it's something that I think anybody might want to do. Uh, it might be a little more difficult if you're not the secretary of the Smithsonian and have the help of the curator. But today, so much of the, the, the collections are digitized. Uh, a lot of that can be done by personal searching. And it's just a, an eye-opening experience. I really love the title of your new book, Things New and Strain as Southerners Journey Through the Smithsonian Collection. So let's talk a little bit about the book then. What What's your favorite story from the book about all the excavation, the investigation you did, the remarkable collectors you came across, the curators? Well, the, the I think the basic element in terms of the research uh, was surprise. Uh, I, I, every object that I saw that related to this area I was from surprised me. I, I didn't expect to see it. And then... <laughs> Attached to every object was somebody who collected it, and somehow that object got into the Smithsonian collections, and there it was cared for by curators who really, uh, you know, see this as their life's work. So I learned an enormous amount about the place, uh, about people, and the people who touched or saw to this object getting into the collections, and they often were very unusual people. So I think the the element of this uh, search for me was it was exciting. I, I never knew on any given day what I would find. Uh, I in, There were those days where I would get a call from a curator saying, uh, Dr. Clough, I think I have something you'll be interested in. And I love those calls. <laughs> 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 and, and one of those calls uh, that just like that came from uh, Rusty Russell, who at that time was a head of uh, head curator of botany, but the, the collections in botany. And they have 1.2 million objects in that collection. Uh, 
And out of that 1.2 million set of, of objects, specimens, was one that he had located that he wanted to show me because he knew I loved longleaf pines. Longleaf pines are trees that typically grow in the coastal plain in Georgia and other places. Uh, it's a beautiful tree. You, you've heard of heart of pine timber. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But uh, when Europeans came here and they saw this uh, beautiful tree and realized the wood they could get from it, they cut it down unmercifully to the point today that longleaves occupy only about 3 or 4% of the range that they used to occupy. Fortunately, some have been saved, and four of them were in the front yard of the house. I had a very modest house, but it had beautiful trees. And I used to just sit out at night and listen to the wind blowing in those long needles of that tree. So lo and behold, I'm looking at this specimen that Rusty has for me, and I look down in the the, the boilerplate there where it gives uh, information about it, and it says it was collected in Douglas, Georgia, in 1903, hmm. uh, I was stunned. I, I, I never imagined that there would actually be something collected from my hometown. <laughs> and it says it was collected by Roland Harper. Uh, there were two pieces to that. One was, uh, as you look at the cover of the book, you can see this. This, The way that specimen was arranged just struck me as is so the essence of it was so clear and beautiful, like a Zen portrait almost. And I knew somebody with a very special sense of aesthetic had done that, and that was this gentleman, Roland Harper. And it turns out Roland Harper would become one of the most well-known botanists to ever live in the Southeast, in Georgia and Alabama. And at that time, he was a PhD student from Columbia. And he had chosen to do his thesis on uh, things that grow uh, in and, and around a formation called Altamaha Grep, named after the river Altamaha. And uh, so he spent his time collecting there. Uh, he spent some time in the Okanokee Swamp as well. Uh, but Roland Harper turns out to be a genius, an eccentric genius. Uh, but that's an example. One, to see that specimen and realize it came from my hometown and to realize that this eccentric person was attached to it. So it's, and you see this, I mean, uh, you know, crawfish. Uh, There's a gentleman uh, named Horton Hobbs, who's a very prominent scientist that's been on him for many years, who was a specialist in crawfish. And Horton Hobbs collected crawfish in Coffee County, believe it or not. Apparently he drove all over Georgia. Uh, he had all his collecting stuff in his car. He also uh, was a raconteur. Uh, he would stop and have a little scotch along the way. He, <laughs> he was just a, a wonderful person. They called him Old Crow Daddy. <laughs> and he wrote the seminal book on Georgia crawfish. And he, in fact, changed the whole science understanding of crawfish from, from his work. Uh, but, you know, there again, but one of the crawfish he collected was called a Christmas tree crawfish. And it's a beautiful little red and green crawfish. And it's only found in a certain set of streams in and around close to my home. Uh, so, you know, you just don't, you just don't, I didn't go in thinking I would ever see a Christmas tree crawfish or that I would get to know Crawdaddy Hobbs, but I did. <laughs> so it was just a fascinating experience. Well, 
As I say, I love the title, but I love the names too. Crawdaddy Hobbs is a name I probably am not going to forget anytime soon, Dr. Clough. <laughs> I, I should say the title, the first part of the title uh, was suggested to me by some folks at the University of Georgia Press who published the book. And it comes from a letter that is included in the book. Uh, so there was a gentleman named Mark Catesby who in 1722 came to the United States with the intention of documenting animals and plants that he saw in South Georgia, typically Carolina. Georgia didn't quite exist yet because it wasn't a state until 1733, uh, or colony. And so the uh, Catesby was out on his own in some pretty scary territory in that time. Uh, and he spent four years doing this. And he was uh, one of these folks who is, is an incredibly talented artist. And so he was able to illustrate, create paintings of birds and and uh, flora and fauna that he saw on his trip. His work was sponsored by uh, the Queen of England and by the Princess of Wales. And the second volume that he wrote was to the Princess of Wales. And he was, uh, the, the, it's in the foreword in the book. And, the, you know, these books are the, what they call elephant folios. They're huge. And you open, you have to have two hands to open them up. And these gorgeous illustrations just look up at you. Uh, and he said, Dear Madam, I present you with a book with things new and strange that you've never seen before. And I thought it was just the perfect uh, choice of words that, that for me, in a way, going back to South Georgia after having left for many years and even lived in California, I thought, you know, I, I didn't respect what was there until really I did this book. And it is true that there are still wondrous things in South Georgia. Uh, and uh, I think, it, I hope the book uh, helps people understand that that's true. Well, you mentioned Douglas, Georgia, your hometown. And of course, part of the title is A Southerner's Journey. This is very personal. And your own family history is tied to some of the discoveries you made uh, throughout your life. How so? Yes. Well, uh, as I said, my great-great-grandfather, uh, John Truclough, came uh, to Georgia, and he's connected to the story. The narrative is the narrative of how South Georgia became South Georgia. And when you get into the part where you start having Europeans interacting with the Native Americans, that story gets to be very complicated. Uh, the first element of that was Hernando de Soto going through South Georgia on the rivers, the Okmogi and the Oconee, and he encountered Native Americans there who had a very rich and robust culture, which is documented in the book through artifacts that the Smithsonian had obtained from a number of, of uh, archaeological digs that they held there in Georgia. And But unfortunately, the Soto came through and he had 600 men with him uh, and he had pigs and horses and the pigs had human diseases just like the humans did that the Native Americans had no resistance to. And so a large percentage of the Native American population was wiped out. And all we have left of those people uh, are these massive mounds that they built in places like the Okmulgee Mound, a national monument outside of Macon, and the Etowah Mounds, which is actually in North Georgia. Uh, beautiful, beautiful mounds, uh, that, and it was a, a very rich culture that we're just beginning to understand. After that, the remnants of the Native Americans reconstituted themselves into nations and tribes like 
the name, using the names we know, and that's the Cherokee and the Creek. Uh, the Creek occupied basically South Georgia, and in the War of 1812, Andrew Jackson was uh, charged with taking the Tennessee militia to defeat some of the Creek Indians, not all of them, but some of them who had chosen to side with the British, and he did. Uh, it was a, a long and complicated battle but he won, and he had he he had uh, terms for the Creek Indians that were harsh. He basically told them uh, at, at the, the treaty gathering. He said, "You will have to leave your home, and you will go to Oklahoma." And that took about that process actually took about thirty years, but uh, he forced them all to leave, and so there's almost no remnant of the Creek Nation in South Georgia. There is some in, in Alabama, and of course, on the northern side of the, the, the fall lines like the, the, used to define the, the South Georgia, you have the Cherokee story, and everybody's familiar with the Trail of Tears and the Cherokee story. But the Creek Indians came first, and 24 million acres of land became available. And so people like my great-great-grandfather, who was land-bound up in New England, heard about this and you could come down and buy land through a lottery system very cheap and so he he came to south georgia because of that uh and so that that's where we get into the story my great-grandfather jonathan gilman club uh ends up as an 18 year old in the civil war fighting on the side of the south when in fact we had cluffs from the north fighting on the side of the north so you interweave that story i even found that Five uh, Clough's uh, relatives uh, ended up in Andersonville Prison, which is in South Georgia. And the Smithsonian has artifacts from Andersonville. And to realize that, you know, I have members of my family fighting on, on the opposite sides of that war. Uh, it was stunning. And, and actually two of the Cluffs in Andersonville Prison died there and are buried there. And another one died and is buried in Marietta. So there, this my story weaves into the story, but the, the, the story that brings it to my time uh, and, and my parents' time is that after the Civil War, there was a, a devastation, if you will, because the infrastructure was destroyed. Sherman didn't actually burn a lot of towns down, but he did destroy the railroads and the infrastructure and the bridges. So there was a poverty. You lost about 25% of the white males out of your population as well in the Civil War, most dying due to disease. Uh, so you had that. And then, of course, uh, the whites in the South brought worsening problems on themselves by creating the Jim Crow and segregation. So there was this legacy of poverty, this legacy of lack of education, this legacy of lack of opportunity. And I was just very fortunate to have parents who their whole life's goal was to see that myself and my brother and sister uh, went to college. So I was very, very lucky. Uh, and the, the breaking out of that poverty cycle, but when I was a, a child, my relatives lived in homes with no electricity. They had outhouses. They didn't have indoor plumbing. Uh, there was a problem with disease. Uh, all these things existed right into my childhood. So, and, and it's, it was a, a manifestation of what happened after the Civil War. So there's this linkage, if you will, right back into that period. We are privileged to be joined today by Dr. G. Wayne Clough, Dr. Clough is the author of the new book, Things New and Strange, 
A Southerner's Journey Through the Smithsonian Collection. Dr. Clough will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates Program Thursday, June 20th, 2019. Following Dr. Clough's presentation, there will be a book signing. Dr. Clough will be joined by Frederica Edelman, the director of Smithsonian Associates, and the two will recount some of Dr. Clough's experiences with the treasures in the Smithsonian archives and uh, tie all of these things together with family, community, and and natural history. Uh, Dr. Clough, you were uh, the first Southern-born secretary of the Smithsonian, and I know that's important to you, and so tell us tell us why. Well, you know, the, it's interesting. It's an interesting question. Um, when when I was a young man, and I ended up going to Georgia Tech and getting my engineering degree, and then leaving the South and going to UC Berkeley and getting my PhD, and uh, as a young person coming from the South, that was a, an eye-opening experience. In many ways, uh, eventually, I would. Uh, be a faculty member at Stanford, and I spent a decade there and loved the experience. And so, in essence, I had, in my own mind, sort of disassociated myself with where I grew up and hadn't thought much about it. I mean, I, I was living in a different place. I loved California and the mountains and the oceans and so forth. And I, I didn't connect myself back uh, mentally to South Georgia. Uh, as time has gone on and my parents moved, my parents actually moved away and then moved back, and I spent more time down there, and I had time to talk to people like Frankie Snow, this friend of mine who's lived there the whole time in his life and is a remarkable person. I realized that that South Georgia was, was also a remarkable place, and it had much to teach us. And I felt that the idea of using the collections to probe this question uh, would be a diff- give us a different point of view. Um, in, in, so, in, in a way, it was my coming back to where I grew up. It is a it is a place now that you know I feel very much attached to it. Uh, my family obviously lived down there for five generations. Uh, and I still have many friends and many relatives. My mother and father both have big families. They were they were uh, farming people, so I have lots of relatives there. Uh, and and uh, I, I just wanted to make it a point that I was from the South, and that uh, you know it, 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 it's a because I have this connection, and and it's a very emotional one for me. It's a fascinating story, and your your new book, The Things New and Strange: A Southerner's Journey Through the Smithsonian Collection, is receiving. Excellent reviews, but tell us, Dr. Cliff, why is it important that we that we continue this lifelong search of learning and exploration into some of these things that might be new and strange, and uh, into families and in even our communities? Well, I think we tend to take things for granted, and that was my case when it came to South Georgia. I did not understand the place where I grew up, and. The in, in my one way of looking at the book and, and what I was able to find, it, it gives a perspective on the history of the place that you don't get any other way. And if you don't understand how a place became what it is, and you, are, you know, you're not willing to face up to some of the things that weren't so nice that happened in that process, uh, then you're the history's not real, it's not rich, it's, it's not going to help people grow and, and to, uh, to continue to, to reinforce the, the love for a place. 
um, you know, the daughters of the United Daughters of the Confederacy, in essence, rewrote the history curriculum uh, for the textbooks that were used in Georgia uh, by saying, for example, that the Civil War was about states' rights. Well, the Civil War was about slavery, and you have to own up to that. And so I was able to, in one part of the book, to use artifacts from the New Museum of African American History and Culture to show what that really meant and how big a business it really was. For example, in the 1860 census, Georgia had just topped a million people in, in the size of the population, but 450,000 of those were enslaved. That's big business. That was a big business. They were considered and treated as property. That was the way they were viewed legally. And so there's uh, an example of a firm in Savannah that caters to people. They, they, it will get them the slaves they want, the kind of people with the skills that they wanted. Uh, it talked about the sales of individuals and how much money was associated with those sales. And that, I thought, brought home the idea of, of how despicable this uh, institution of slavery was, but also what a big business it was. And if you don't realize that, you don't really appreciate your history and you see it in a much uh, less robust way. Uh, and I think everybody enjoys actually knowing more about where they grew up and uh, every part of the country, certainly that part of the country, has wonderful natural history. And if you think about the, the history associated with these great Native American cultures, which were basically lost when the Soto came through, that is a rich part of the story. And if you don't tell that story, you're missing a significant part of the history. Dr. G. Wayne Clough, thank you so much for your generous time today. The former secretary of the Smithsonian, someone who has contributed mightily to the power of the Smithsonian. Dr. Clough, we're looking forward to seeing you Thursday, June 20th, 2019. What a pleasure that's going to be, but thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate it, and I appreciate your, your good, nice, kind comments about the book. Uh, thank you, Dr. Clough. Thanks to G. Wayne Clough, who'll be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates Program Thursday, June 20th, 2019. Dr. Clough's aptly titled presentation, Things New and Strange, Secretary Clough finds personal links in the Smithsonian's collections will draw from his new book, Things New and Strange, A Southerner's Journey Through the Smithsonian Collections, which will be available for sale and signing following the presentation. More details will be available on our website. Thanks to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. And thanks to you, our wonderful Not Old Better Show audience. Remember, talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody. 